Well, good morning. Good to see you all again. It's nice for me to be in this position, because this is actually the first time I've preached since before Christmas. Um, we had a, a little bit of an um, impact on our life, shall we say, a glorious impact. There he is over there with Stu, little Finlay, and uh, life's been full on, shall we say. Uh, but we are loving it, loving being a family of four, but I'm also delighted to be back here and preaching God's Word to you this morning. In the beginning, God. Some of you have heard Genesis 1 is going to be preached this morning, and you're thinking, aha, wonderful. We're going to get sciency. We're going to get into all the big questions that I have about creation. And I wonder if you'll get it right. Because I, I have my own opinion. I think it's probably this or probably that. But we need to see that Genesis 1 is not an isolated text, siphoned off from the rest of the story, written purely to answer our 21st century scientific questions. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't truth here that is going to affect how we view that. But I'm going to ask you this morning to put aside all of your thoughts on whether or not these are 24-hour days or long periods of time or whether or not humans uh, were miraculously created in one moment or, or whether they came to be having already evolved or whatever your scientific questions are. I ask you this morning, put them aside. Because no one category can contain what is in this passage. And actually, if we're going to really get to the heart of Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we need this morning not to think about these questions that we might come with, our kind of baggage, if you like, to the text, but go straight back to the text, to the very first, the very beginning, the very initial words of the whole Bible that set the trajectory for the whole of Scripture, and ask, what are they saying about the big story. What did Genesis 1, 1 and 2 say about what the Bible is, what it says? How does it introduce the rest of Scripture? This is um, the introduction to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And actually, the first five books of the Bible are really one book. It's the book of Moses. We just have them divided in our Bibles. And so we need to keep that in mind, but we also need to keep in mind that these verses don't just introduce us to Scripture, they introduce us to life. This is the big story that is overarching over every other story that has ever been and ever will be. Every other story sits under this story, the mega-narrative. The biggest story ever told, the greatest story ever told, and every other story finds its meaning under that story. And I don't want us to think about periods of time around how we define the days, the seven days that we see in Genesis 1. That's not what I want us to think about this morning. I actually want us to go to before day one even happens. I want us to go to another time period, a time period that is vital for us if we're going to understand the rest of the text, and that is eternity. 
So we are going to take a little bit of time this morning, it might take us a while, work out what eternity looks like, to work through Genesis 1, 1 and 2, because that's where we must begin, with God. This is his story, it's about God, before anything was anything, God. So, let's turn to the easiest passage in Scripture to find, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Are you ready? Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Lord Jesus, open our eyes, I pray this morning, to a greater glimpse of the God we worship. Lord, show us the first order of things. Show us how we should be ordering our lives in light of these verses. Show us what the most important things are, we pray. Lord, I pray that all of the the other messages that we hear day to day that tell us other things are more important, that that somehow they get to compete with this one important truth that from everlasting to everlasting there is God, I pray against those messages. I pray that you would clear our hearts of them this morning so that we would see more of you. Come God, we pray, show us the way to life, to everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis means beginning. It's the beginning of the whole story, the beginning of the story of the whole cosmos and the source of the beginning for the rest of the Bible. The whole biblical story flows from this point. In fact, the first uh, 35 verses of this uh, part of, of, of the Bible are trying to make a very clear point. And that is, it's all about God. Verses 1 to 35 have the mention of God 35 times. God is where we begin. Everything flows from God. Everything, and I don't just mean the Bible text, I mean all of life is centered around God. The reason the Bible is so helpful to us is because it is not primarily about us. I remember when I first came to faith, I was given a a new Bible. And it was a topical Bible. So at the beginning of the Bible, you work uh, through this topical list. And in that list, you would look for something that maybe you were struggling with or something that you wanted to know about God. And then you would jump from that from that list, or to know about yourself more likely, and you would jump from that list to wherever that was in, in, in the Bible. And uh, as a 14, 15-year-old boy, I think you probably know how far through I got. Just looked for L. All the way through, lost. Right, I'll go there, sort it out. Every time, every time, back in, back in, in, in the, the top of the Bible, lost. Right, sort it out. And that, honestly, that became my practice. 
I was like, I need to get over this. And so I, I just, that's where I kept going. 14, 15 year old boy, let's be honest here. 14, 15 year old boy, that's their issue. That's, that's a, a big issue for them, okay? And so we're, we're, going, we're going there, we're going there, we're going there every time. But do you know what would be much better for me? A bigger view of God. If I'd seen more of the majesty and the glory and the wonder of God, that would have been a far better place to start. Topical Bibles are, you know, they serve a purpose. It helped me. But in the end, we need a much bigger view of God. And the whole story is about God. Jesus didn't begin his model for prayer. Right, like, like you know, get your list together. Uh, and look through for your issue, uh, and then what you need to do then is start praying about that. No, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You're, you're, you're. That's why the, uh, the reformer Martin Luther said in a debate with Erasmus during the Reformation in the 1500s, your thoughts of God are too human. It's why the reformers in this country began the Westminster Confession this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Do you think of God much? Do you think much of God? Is that where you give your first thoughts? Do you wake up in the morning and think, the beginning, the, the one who's from everlasting to everlasting, God, my first thoughts. Or is it whatever you're anxious about coming up that day? Is it about how tired you feel? Is it that you wished your baby would sleep more during the night and less during the day? I'm not saying that you need to begin every morning necessarily with a, a long quiet time, you might call it. I think it'd be good, but it might not be practical for you right now. But what I am saying is that each morning we should be waking and beginning our days with the one who is in the beginning, the, the one who is everlasting, the eternal God, the one who is majestic above all things. Do you remind yourself the story is God's, not yours? Our beginning is found in the eternity of God. He is the source of all life. There's something very important for us here, just to pause, recognize. God has always been, and He did not need us. Now, I know in the age of the selfie, that's really hard to imagine. But God did not need to create us to be satisfied. He did not need to discover himself through us. God did not create the world because he needed us. He was eternally happy in himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not wanting, nor wasting, though rulest in might, wrote Walter Chalmers Smith. Now, that is not the Rangers manager from nine in a row, okay? He was the free church minister 
um, from Aberdeen who wrote the great hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Paul preaches to the Athenian philosophers, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God needed nothing, yet he created. That can only mean one thing. Creation is a story of grace. Life is a free gift of God. The whole story is a story of grace. Now, I don't mean that it leads up to a moment of grace, but that act after act, the Bible displays God's grace to us. The story of God and His creation begins, continues, and ends in grace. The Bible is constantly leading us to the conclusion that God is good and gracious. The Bible also talks constantly about how creation points us to the Creator. We are made to be in awe of His extraordinary creativity. It's why we love to sing songs with thousands of others when our favorite band is on tour. It's why we appreciate beautiful art. It's why we love to walk along sandy beaches and hear the ocean crashing in beside us. It's why we climb mountains and stop to look out over the incredible landscapes. It is all a gift of God to enjoy. We're made for goosebump moments like that, to be in awe of God. But although creation is wonderful, it's wonderful because it points to the Creator. We aren't simply to enjoy creation. We are to enjoy creation to the Creator's glory. Paul writes to the believers in Rome, Romans 1.20, Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So they are without excuse. I love the view from the top of Ben Ann. Looks out over Loch Katrin. If you've not done it, you should do it. It's really not even that far from here. What would it take? Less than an hour to get up there. And it's not a long climb. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Um, but that view that gives me goosebumps on a clear day doesn't just give me goosebumps because it in itself is beautiful. It gives me goosebumps because I know the Creator who made it. It leaves us worshipful. When we see who made it, we think, oh, Lord, you deserve all the praise. You don't get up there, do you, and think, I'm an eye amazing. Look at me. I'm amazing. You look out over it and you think, wow. This is incredible. Even if you don't know God, you think this is incredible. You don't, you don't think, oh, I'm amazing. You think, this is amazing. Life without God is simply to separate ourselves from the life giver. That's what we'll see in Genesis 3. 
in a a few weeks' time. But when we get to that, before we get to that strange story about a snake and some fruit and some people who are tempted to do it all on their own, we need to recognize, even here, while we're in Genesis 1, 1, and 2, that that is where we are now. We have fallen, and we need to return to God. It's what we then see at Babel, when people try and build their own tower to heaven. It's what we see in the generation of Noah. People try to live this party lifestyle. It's extremely selfish and evil. It's what we see with the Egyptians, who even make one of their own a god. It's what we see when Israel can't wait for Moses to get down uh, from that mountain. And the, by the time Moses gets back down, they've, they've made this god out of a gold in the shape of a cow. All through the Pentateuch, Moses is essentially reminding the people of God time and time again of this simple truth from Genesis chapter 1-1. In the beginning, God. I was in the trendy West End in a wee cafe uh, not long ago, and I was uh, getting myself a wee coffee, a wee V60 pour-over. I know. That wee thingy my bobby that makes you have to pay five pounds, and I'm not sure it's that much better. But I noticed the barista, I think you have to call them that, I get offended otherwise, had a tattoo. It said, let Glasgow flourish. My uh, attention was drawn to this tattoo because I too want Glasgow to flourish. So I said that to her. I said, look, I too want to make Glasgow, fl- I would like, love to see Glasgow flourish. And uh, we have this little conversation. She probably thinks I'm really weird. And um, I'm like, are you going to finish it? She's like, what do you mean? You know, that's not the end of the, of the tattoo. It's, it's like Glasgow flourished by the preaching of his word and the praising of his name. And uh, she looks at me and she says, uh, uh, no. I was thinking about finishing it, but I don't think that's it, is it? It's, it's, I think it's actually um, the, uh, like Glasgow Flourish by the truth. I was like, no, no, no it's not. <laughs> um, but I see where you're coming from. <laughs> I think we're coming from two different places. You see, what's happened in our culture is we've, we've taken on this secular myth that life without God is good and progresses us beyond a religious age. I remember when I first saw her with this tattoo, I was like, oh, she must be a Christian. But clearly not. And actually, she reflects the views of, a, of most people in Glasgow. People have believed almost like religion that secular progressivism, which is so advanced compared to religious mythology, is only going to keep improving. Sounds to me like an ever-rising Tower of Babel. One of the primary reasons that we live in such a godless generation is that we are self-obsessed and distracted. Smartphones, for example. A wonderful feat of technological progression. We can video... Annabelle and Finley's grandparents on the south coast of England and uh, have a 
a conversation with them on our phones. Wow, they can see the kids. That's, that's amazing. I can get in touch with people who are part of our advanced network of churches and, and speak with them, whether they're in South Africa or India or America or wherever they are. That's amazing. That's so good. That's such a, a good use of the way in which we have progressed in technology. Wonderful. But honestly, sometimes I wonder, can we, are we even capable of living life and progressing at the same rate? I honestly don't think we are. We're also stupefying ourselves. Stupefying ourselves from original thought, real conversation. We have eroding memories, shortening attention spans. How many families do you see when they're out for a meal in Pizza Hut or wherever it is, and they should be enjoying one another's company, and they're taking pictures of pepperamis or whatever? Pepperonis? Pepperamis? I always get them mixed up. You think, come on, just enjoy one another, be with one another. What are you doing? It's like we've forgotten how to talk to each other. I was at the lights the other day um, on my bike coming into town, and uh, there was a green man, and there was a pedestrian, this lady who was maybe, I don't know, mid-twenties, that doesn't matter. She was stood there, and she had her phone, and... um, she was looking down at her phone, but she hadn't noticed that it was a green man. And so I had to tell her, excuse me, it's a green man, you can go now. And uh, she, she barely looked up. She sort of glanced at the green man and was like, head down in her phone. I'm like, you're crossing a busy junction. What are you doing? We've lost it. Let me be really honest. I suspect that most of us in this church have struggled to read our Bibles this week while spending much more time aimlessly scrolling and posting online. I read this quote from Ronald Rollheiser in a blog this week. I haven't read any of his other stuff, but I just thought this quote was extraordinary. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up in our, on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and relentlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. We're being distracted from our vision and view of God. We have more choice than ever before. We eat and drink like Solomon did, but we choose what is bad for us. Mortality rates increasing all the time. The last two years, they've gone up in both the UK and the US. First time in decades. Heart disease, diabetes, addiction, you name it. The more we have, the more obvious it is that although so much is progressing, there is something seriously wrong with our emotional and spiritual health of what it means to be a human being. We could go on. More connected than ever before, yet increasingly relationally starved. Single households, the new norm. 
The happiness index suggests we are less happy than since they began trying to record that in the 1950s. Seems to me that perhaps it's not the Bible that is coming up with myths about who we are and what life is all about. It's the utopian dreams of yet another failing human-built ideology. This is uh, the Bridge to Nowhere. The Bridge to Nowhere was a bridge that was built in the 1960s from Anderston, it started to be built, uh, from Anderston, going, connecting them to the city center, pedestrian bridge. But they ran out of money. They had this great vision for how they would connect the people of Anderson into the city. And yet, for 40 years, that's what it looked like. You couldn't cross it. We only went so far, and then it was just this drop. I think that our secular progressivism is just like that. It starts out with great promises constant improvement. But like every other ideology, it stalls, it falters, and eventually it dies. Mark Sayers is an Australian pastor, and he made this observation. The secularist myth is progression without presence. Progression without presence. It's progression without God without His life-giving presence. We see hovering over the deep in verse 2. The Spirit gives life, and the, the Spirit is the presence of God that was there, the creating force as the Word of God spoke out over creation and brought life. And we've separated ourselves from it. We need to wake up to the state of our godless culture. We need to hear the voice of Jesus calling out to us, what good is it to gain the whole world if you lose your souls? The presence of God is where we come from, it's where we are going, and it's how we get there. And our culture right now has forgotten it's how we get there. And it's not where we're going. And as the church, we need to be revived to know that it is by the presence of God, this everlasting life that was there in the beginning, who breathed out life, it is that presence that we must return to. It is by that presence that we will see this city and this nation renewed. It is by that presence that one day we will eventually see all of creation renewed in a new creation. Despite what happens in chapter 3 to cause this tendency for us to ignore God for a life of self, there is a clue actually right here in verse 1. The word beginning. The word beginning in biblical Hebrew is almost always paired with the word end, marking a specific period of time or a story that is beginning and will have a middle and will have an end. Here comes the ultimate plan. God, in His grace, created, and God, in His grace, will recreate, renew. John Salaheimer in his brilliant book, The Pentateuch, 
as narrative said this. The growing focus within the biblical canon on the times of the end is an appropriate extension of the end already anticipated in the beginning of Genesis 1.1. He's talking about that pairing. When we see beginning, expect end. The fundamental principle reflected in 1.1 and the prophetic vision of the end times in the rest of Scripture is that the last things will be the first things. In other words, God's going to renew all of this. And you have a choice. Do you want to pursue the presence of God and be part of that? Because that's what we're invited into. The Spirit hovered over the deep in verse 2, ready to bring life to God's creation in the beginning. That same Holy Spirit would one day hover over a tomb. This moment that we see in verse 2 with the Spirit of God hovering over the deep is a bit like a composer. God being the composer, ready to begin. There's hush around the place. And he's ready. He's ready to bring a glorious noise. He's ready to bring together all these glorious elements that turn this orchestra into a beautiful symphony. And then when it all goes wrong and everything's out of tune, he does the same thing. Jesus himself, who is the Word of God in creation, John tells us, he comes, God himself, lives a life that we couldn't live dies in our place. And three days later, the Spirit of God raises him up from the dead, the first fruits from the dead. And then he invites us. He's raised up into heaven 40 days later. And then he invites us by the power of the Holy Spirit into that same creative process. And he does so by bringing renewal to the places that he calls us through his people, through the church. And then one day, he will return. It's a promise to the church. He will return. Jesus will return. And we will be joined together in the presence of God forever and ever. This God who is majestic, who is above all, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And I want us to see something. That's the, that's the end that Salaheimer talks about. But actually, what we're saying is that this beginning and end is actually very different to most stories. Most stories have a, a definitive end. One that is, is done. I mean, that's the end. That's what end means. It's done. But in the Bible story, what we see is it begins with everlasting and it ends with everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, you are invited in to the everlasting spirit, presence, love, grace of God. 
That's what that pairing hints to us. That's why Moses put it that way. This is just the beginning. It's a glorious beginning. God has created it perfectly and beautifully. We're going to see that. We're going to see this rhythm next week in the rest of Genesis 1 when we go look through that. This rhythm for the way in which he created life. And now this glorious rhythm that we now have to live. But he starts there in the beginning with an end in sight. One that you, through Jesus, have been invited into. John signs off Revelation 22 as he addresses us, those who seek and wait for the renewal of all things. These are the last words in Scripture. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. God is everlasting life, and out of everlasting life, he gives us life. He is the source of life. And we need to get off this bridge to nowhere and turn to him as our beginning and our end. Shall we pray? Lord God, I thank you so much that you are the main character of this story. I thank you, God, that the the bigger the picture we have of you, the the more majestic we see you in all of your radiance and glory. I, I thank you, God, that that is where we find our purpose. That is where we find our satisfaction. That is where we find how to live life. That has got to be the starting point of everything we do is to, to look to you, God. So God, would you be high and lifted up in this place this morning? As we come to worship you now, as we come to respond to your word, I, I pray, Lord, that Genesis 1-1, just even that first half of that verse would mean so much to us. In the beginning, God. Life would not exist without you, God. Give us the goosebump type feelings this morning, I pray, because we're worshiping the one and only true God, majestic above all things. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us now to live in the power and the presence of your Spirit, that your Holy Spirit is here. The presence of God is here. And I thank you so much that through us, you're renewing this world, but that eventually, one day, we will see this great renewal complete, and it's going to be so good, an everlasting life that we will enjoy forever. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's get on our feet, shall we?